Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Club. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Episode 5 of the Science Night Podcast. I want to start off by thanking everyone who has taken the time to download and rate and review this podcast. I started off hoping that there may be a small audience for this somewhere out there eventually, and it turns out that there are some people that want to listen to me drone on and on and on and on. But I think that has to do more with the quality of the guests that we've been able to put together. And tonight is no exception. In this episode, I got to talk with Dr. Emily Cooper. She is a neuroscientist who focuses on vision at UCAL Berkeley. And we definitely covered the standard Science Night questions, but, you know, the conversation always goes somewhere interesting. And we went all the way from course design to her giving me some much-needed career advice. So, without further chattering, let's get into it. This is the interview episode with Emily Cooper. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for talking with me tonight, Emily. Uh, it's been way too long since we've gotten to talk like this, and I'm really excited for the conversation we're going to have tonight. Oh, yeah, it's great to see you, James, and I'm just excited to talk about some science. Perfect, perfect. That's that's the point of all this, right? Yeah. So uh, we're going to go through a couple questions, and we have three three kind of big questions to go uh, to go over and answer as we go through this, and we'll also see where the conversation goes. Uh, and I will try to keep it on track, but uh, I've talked to you before, and sometimes <laughs> sometimes we like to go on long tangents. So the beauty of editing will will be our guide. Yeah, and just imagine the interthalamic adhesion is going to have to come up at some point, right? It, it is definitely going to have to come up. <laughs> so the first question, and it's really kind of the most basic question, but it gives us a springboard to all kinds of things. Tell us a little bit about what you do. I'm a professor at uh, University of California, Berkeley. I am on the faculty in the School of Optometry, uh, and I'm also affiliated with the Neuroscience Institute, the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute at Berkeley. Um, I consider myself a vision scientist, um, so I study a set of related research questions related to human visual perception uh, with a particular uh, interest in applying those insights to emerging technologies. That seems incredibly interesting. And um, you're going to be the first guest that has a blend of basic and applied research. And I'm really excited to kind of talk about the difference with that. So do you find that there is a different approach when you are looking at these, uh, these two aspects of your research? Or are you really just... Um, using the scientific method, but in different ways? I think the approach is definitely different. Uh, for, so for example, when we're working on an applied research question, for example, if we're interested in a perceptual artifact that shows up in a particular display system, 
I think it's really important for us to work on those questions uh, with people in industry uh, who are working on designing the displays because that can really help us guide our research activities and make sure that we're performing studies in a way that will be constructive for advancing the technology. So I'd say that's a big difference is that where, I, where we go to to figure out where an important question might be differs depending on whether it's a basic research question where maybe we're driven by a curiosity about something about the visual system, something that's unknown, you know, it's really open. We're, we're basically open to answering any type of question that's within our area uh, where it, it doesn't feel like there's an answer out there already. Whereas when we're working on an applied project, I think it's really important that we zero those efforts in in a way that can have the most impact on technology moving forward. And when you're doing um, an applied research project, you're working, you know, you're typically working closely with industry, as you said. Do you find that there is more pressure on the results from that project, or are you still able to let the results happen as as they're going to come, um, you know, still still working closely with industry in that aspect. Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of the things about doing research is that uh, we don't know what the answer is going to be when we start out on a research project. And, you know, a lot of times we, we have strategies to try to get some idea of what the answer might be. So obviously we go to the prior scientific literature and we try to develop specific hypotheses uh, for what we think the outcome of our study might be based on similar studies that have been conducted. We also do a lot of pilot testing. So even if we don't have all of the details worked out for a study, we might start by running a small pilot test to get a general idea of Okay, how noisy are the results going to be? How different are different individual humans going to be when they perform this task? What types of instructions are going to be most informative? So we do a lot of piloting and debriefing with our pilot participants uh, to understand uh, where the study might ultimately go. Um, but then once the study is designed and off and running, um, then it, it really operates the same way. Uh, regardless of whether we're interested in, well, does binocular fusion work in this way, which maybe is more of a basic question we're pursuing, or can people perceive this artifact binocularly? Um, it, once, you, once you get the study designed and off and running, it's all kind of the same stuff. So it seems like you're putting, when you're doing an applied uh, study, you're putting yourself into the best position for success, but the results are going to be the results um, at the end of the day. Yeah. So it's all, it's all in prep work at that point. Yeah. Making sure you have a well-controlled study, um, running the study in a way that when you get the results, there's a high probability that they will be interpretable and you'll be confident about the conclusions that you can draw from those results. That's all sure. stuff that's done, uh, in kind of the extensive preparation before we start an experiment. Um, you can't obviously you can't know what the outcome will be until you run the whole study, but I think you can maximize the probability that you'll have an interesting and interpretable outcome by by doing a lot of prep work. Would you mind telling us uh, some of the projects that you've been working on um, in in the applied sphere? 
Yeah, so I can tell you we're, we're interested particularly in using perceptual studies to advance um, what we would call a near-eye display system, uh, which is a general term that refers to the types of optics and displays and hardware that go into systems, for example, that get used for virtual reality um, or augmented reality or um, even things like smart glasses, which are maybe kind of a form of augmented reality. And so, for instance, one study that we're working on now, um, we're interested in understanding perception of the, the uniformity of the view when you're looking through an augmented reality system. Uh, so, I, James, I believe that you have tried an augmented reality system, right? I have, yes. <laughs> So I think uh, maybe a couple of years ago, you came by my lab and you tried a Microsoft HoloLens, mm -hmm. which is what we would call an optical see-through augmented reality system. Okay. Um, and so if you remember, when you put on a system like the HoloLens or like a Magic Leap 1, um, you can see the, the light from the world comes through the system, right? So it doesn't occlude your view of the world, like if you were wearing a VR headset, but then there are virtual objects and patterns that are superimposed over uh, your view of the world. And that's why we call it augmented reality, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when you're designing a system like that, um, sometimes it can be hard for when different people put on the headset for them to clearly see all the parts of the virtual objects. Um, and there can be different types of fading or um, optical artifacts that make it look just a little less uh, real or a little less sharp. Mm -hmm. uh, sharp, yeah. Sure. And so we've been doing a study where we constructed a benchtop setup where we can, in, under really controlled setting, simulate some of those artifacts. And mm -hmm. one of the studies we've been doing uh, right now has been looking at whether those artifacts are more or less visible, depending on whether you have a monocular view of the virtual objects or a binocular view. Because if mm -hmm. you, so I don't know if you've tried a system like a Google Glass, um, but maybe you've at least seen that pictures of people wearing it. Sure. And that would be a monocular system. It's actually mm -hmm. quite different from the system you tried in my lab. There's just a display you see with one eye. Um, and so that's kind of a big decision when a system is being designed is, do you want to stimulate both eyes or is one eye sufficient? So we've been looking at when you make that decision, how, um, how does that impact the perception of certain types of artifacts? And would, would that perception be different for somebody with uh, differing abilities of depth, depth perception? Yeah, I mean, so that ends up being a really important issue, particularly for for binocular systems. Uh, I don't know. So, how have you? I can't remember. Have you tr have you tried many virtual reality systems? So, I have tried um, the Oculus Quest. Ah, yes. Recently, and I believe I tried. The what was the larger version of the Oculus? The Rift. The Rift, yeah. Yeah, so I, I believe I tried that. I think I was um, trying out some anatomy software mm -hmm. in your lab, and it was very official. And then 
five minutes after I looked at that, I spent the next hour um, shooting robots, um, <laughs> yes. which is obviously, you know, the the benefit of knowing all the cool scientists I know is because I can broaden my knowledge of the scientific world. And also you get to play with really cool toys a lot. Um, so to answer your question, I have tried the Oculus Rift and the Oculus Quest. So the, like the standard closed world, um, virtual reality system. Yeah. So when you, for example, when you tried the Quest recently, did, did you notice that there was a little adjustment on the bottom, right? Yeah. And you had yeah. to adjust that. And what that's doing is it's adjusting the system to try to match your inner pupillary separation um, because people actually can differ by quite a bit in how far apart their two eyes are. And if you're creating a binocular system where you want to simulate the binocular view that people get uh, from the natural environment, you kind of want to have it well matched to their interocular separation. And so this is an issue that, that can come up because ha having that be mechanically adjustable obviously requires some hardware and it requires a system to be able to accommodate those mechanics. So that's a decision that would need to be made. This is important enough that we're going to add this mechanical adjustment um, versus maybe trying to work around it in other ways, trying to correct for the IPD and software maybe, or assuming an average IPD and just fixing it, sorry, IPD, interpupillary distance, and just fixing it that and saying, okay, well, we'll cover most people too. I and mean, there are a lot of different ways to, right. to deal with that. And the way that you make that decision um, could theoretically be governed by the results of a perceptual study. You know, if you're worried, well, if I make this decision versus that decision, um, how's that going to affect um, the visual experience of people with smaller IPDs, for example? Uh, that's the sort of thing that it might be useful to have a perceptual study done before a piece of hardware is uh, put on the market. So I remember um, when virtual reality systems were starting to really take off, there was there was a lot of reporting on kind of the VR nausea, the VR um, feeling of, of vertigo. Does, does that have anything to do with that, uh, with that design? Um, or is that something that's unrelated? I think that's a topic of ongoing research. Um, and we don't do a ton of discomfort research in my lab uh, right now where we mostly are focused on how does this look to you, you know, respond. Is this better or is that better? Uh, but there are a lot of researchers who have been advancing our understanding of the sort of multifactorial uh, contributors to simulator sickness or VR sickness. Um, and I think it plausibly, some of it could be uh, depth mismatches associated with having an incorrect interpupillary distance. Uh, there are a lot of other potential contributors. You know, you know temporal lag um, is a big one that's gotten better in more modern systems. Um, there are other types of visual cue conflicts um, that are known to cause discomfort. So I think that in terms of how do you really eliminate that discomfort in a VR system, the jury is still out. But I think, you know, if you've tried a, a system that came out in the past years versus having tried one, uh, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago, it, to me, it's quite noticeable that I think it's gotten a lot better. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, you know, I, I never had a big issue with the VR sickness, but the ability to dial it in with the Quest versus the... I feel like I'm buzz marketing Oculus, like I should be getting some money from them. And <laughs> if they want to sponsor me, we will take it. But, um, but that is not the case. But I, I do feel like being able to dial that in made the experience a lot more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can definitely see kind of that research at work. Um, so you talked about augmented reality. I know we're, we're kind of jumping back to something we covered, but I wanted to um, just talk about the things that could be done uh, with augmented reality where you're working on. So mm-hmm. you're not necessarily just working on a new product with the idea of we're going to make tons of money. There is something there. It seems like there's something that you're trying to address using augmented reality and virtual reality. Would you like to talk about possible, possible uses and benefits coming from the work that you're doing with binocular vision and depth perception? Right. Yes. So I think this is a really important question as scientists. Why are we interested in advancing the state of art of display systems? And the reason why that's a compelling activity to me is because I think that advances in display systems really go hand in hand with advances in computing. Um, And as those things emerge into new sets of systems, you know, mobile devices, wearable devices, there are a whole host of new opportunities that arise uh, that I think can really contribute to the public good. Like we've been talking about when you came by my lab to try out uh, augmented reality system, that was because there was an opportunity for a new type of educational experience uh, that you wanted to look into. Um, And I think new ways to present 3D material, new ways to make learning immersive are really exciting. Just advancing the way that we can communicate visually in the back and I, you know, the, the 80s computer graphics were pretty limited and the, the amount of content and ideas that you could communicate visually on a display, I think it would be hard to argue that that hasn't advanced substantially uh, since then. Um, and then in my lab over the past few years, we've also been particularly interested in exploring how particularly near-eye display systems could potentially be used to support people who are visually impaired uh, to perform some of the activities of daily living. Um, And this is really sort of a newer line of research in my lab. For much longer, we've been doing the basic vision research and the technology research, and now we're trying to take these systems that are getting to the point where, you know, maybe in, in the next, I mean, I don't want to throw a date out there, but maybe in the next 10 years, this is sort of the new personal computing platform. Could there be ways to integrate in visual enhancement or visual assistance um, that would benefit people with a range of different visual abilities? Um, And so it's been really great to be in the School of Optometry uh, in terms of advancing that research because we have a lot of great clinical expertise. But it's really just one of, I think, many different ways in which advances in visual computing and visual displays can uh, have a broader impact on the public good. I want to shift gears a little bit. We've talked we've talked about what you do and what you do is amazing and the fact that computer science is the science I am lacking the most 
and uh, um, it really it really makes me interested. You know, you're always interested in the things that you really don't know that much about because you, you get the opportunity to learn it. No CS classes over there at Dartmouth. So I, I've been told that CS classes are among the hardest classes at Dartmouth <laughs> if you don't already know computer science going into them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I think that CS1 is a pretty popular class. I don't know. I, I've been told it is, but I am firmly entrenched in the in the uh, let's talk about the body and, and that sort of thing. Not to say that I do not value... Um, the work that the computer sciences department is doing, you know, they've done amazing things with the department of anthropology in taking biostats and, um, kind of simulating how different, um, different hominids would walk. And, and it's, it's amazing to see the interdisciplinary support, um, that is coming up, not not just at the institution I work at or, or where you are, but just, it seems to be a trend, that has brought about some really interesting work and some really interesting results because of that. And I'm hopeful, and I haven't seen any reason for it not to continue, but I'm really hopeful that that trend continues where, you know, the anthropology nerds are talking to the, um, you know, the computer science nerds and um, that physics is also talking to other people and, you know, physics and geology and, and stuff like that. So it's, it really, it really helps the science when silos start to get uh, taken down a little bit, but there's still plenty of work to be done in that, that aspect. So we talked about, uh, you know, what you do. um, And I'm always interested in what kind of drives people to get to that point. Because, you know, getting to the point where you have a PhD and your your um, a faculty appointment at an, a very good uh, research institution uh, and then the point where you get to go to a different research institution after after that and, and leave me. Um, <laughs> was that a, I think that was um, a little burn there. It, it was. Uh, <laughs> and I'll probably cut that out. <laughs> but... Uh, um, what is that path? So what is, what is the thing that drives you to go through all those years of learning? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, speaking of which, one thing that I was thinking about, uh, before I called you today is that I think you, the class, that class that I taught at Dartmouth, the human neuroanatomy class, that was the first class that I ever taught on my own. I had uh, been a, like, graduate student instructor TA sort of role when I was getting my PhD, Um, and I I had probably given some guest lectures in other classes, but so so you helped me with putting together my first class, so thanks for that. Yeah, and it was extremely well received. I don't know, maybe maybe you don't know this, maybe you do. Uh, it is not taught anymore. Um, <laughs> so they were not able to replicate uh, the eager to teach graduate student um, uh, faculty member in, in that department. So now they're back to taking neuro with, oh no, they did change it up. So it's different from med neuro now? 
Yeah, it is. Oh. So they've they've kind of spun spun that into the like uh, experimental molecular molecular medicine mm-hmm. course. Um, so the, it's still with graduate students. And, yeah, that seems like a good you know. idea. Yeah, and the really interesting thing that they're doing in that course specifically is looking at comparative specimens. So they look at non-human brains, yeah. um, other than sheep. Um, we've put together a comparative collection where they have like emu and, um, yeah. And, and also we specifically looked at creating an evolutionary pathway for the brain. So we, we start with lamprey, um, and you get like the beginning of the, the invertebrates and we go forward with like dogfish, shark and fish, um, so that you can see the evolution of the eye along with the evolution of the brain and see if, can can we look at the brain and intuit the behavior of that species based on the brain? So mm-hmm. that when you get to the point where you're talking about human neuroanatomy, you have a better understanding on what these things do and why why are humans different because our brains are different. Um, I made it seem like I did a lot in that planning process. I <laughs> just got the brains out of the head. <laughs> Well, I I really appreciated you taking the brains out of the heads for me, though. That's not. So- <laughs> I, I remember you specifically asking when we were planning my course, like, so do you want do you want me to take the brain out of the head during class, or do you want me to do that before a class? And I I felt quite strongly that we could just have the brains. We didn't need to see them come out of the heads. I tend to agree, um, <laughs> but I never want to step on the feet of a faculty member putting their class together. Yeah. You know, I, I really do think it is important that you and any faculty member are able to make the class the, the way you want it to be uh, and feel supported in doing that because you just see the faculty take such an active role in that planning and it really kind of follows through into the teaching and whether or not it is the best course that could be designed, the students feel like this is the best course that I could have taken at this point because the instructor's engaged. They uh, they have created this, this kind of flow to the work. So I, I feel really strongly in supporting the faculty to get to the point they want to and not really adding my two cents. Yeah, just giving them the brains, right? They don't need yeah, the heads. Yeah, right. Right. But I do exactly. remember, I, I think it was the second time that um, I offered that course. And again, I had been quite adamant that when we were in there, we really just were interested in brains. But I think um, one of the anthropology professors ended up coming in towards the end and was doing something with a whole cadaver. And I was surprised at how much the class loved it. Right. They all went over and they were like, what's this? And we were all checking it out. So I think given the chance to to do it again, maybe um, maybe I would make a different decision. Sure. You know, it's it's always interesting to see. And I know a lot of neuroscientists specifically get angry when I say like the wiring because they're like it's not like electricity. People say it's like electricity. and It's totally different than that. But. You know, it's a lot like electricity. (laughs) It's a lot like a a home's wiring system. And I think that if you get too focused on learning, and I think this this is true of any subject, when you get too focused on learning 
only one thing, you don't really get the context of like, or, or this part of the brain is based on the motor function of the arm. It's like, okay, well, how do I get there? What does that look like when I get to that point? So I, I think full context is great, but finding that happy medium of like, well, they're not going to be uh, orthopedic surgeons. Um, right. So so give them the context, but also you know get to the point. Yeah, and sort of starting to maybe circle back a bit to the actual question you asked. Um, <laughs> part of um, part of why I was so excited to design that course when I showed up at Dartmouth was because that was one of the first courses that I took in grad school um, when I came to Berkeley uh, to do my PhD in neuroscience. Um, I took a I think it was just called Human Neuroanatomy course. Um, and I had not done a neuroscience major in undergrad. Um, I had been an English major and I had then double majored in psychology. Um, so I, I needed to take the courses in neuroscience quite seriously as I was kind of getting up to speed with some of the stuff. I had, I had worked in a lab and I had learned a lot in the lab and done a lot of reading, but I hadn't taken a lot of coursework. And the course that I took in neuroanatomy in that first semester in grad school, I just loved it so much. And it was so inspiring to me. And it was taught by this professor, Marion Diamond, who is just like a, a legend in teaching anatomy and also studying human brain anatomy. Do you have the coloring book? Have we discussed the coloring book? I believe so. We did talk about it. And I think I had like a partially colored in version of the coloring book that kind of got passed down to me as I uh, kind of inherited my academic library. Um, but I mean, you're absolutely right. Like not just major in teaching anatomy, but in kind of changing the pedagogic pedagogical approach to teaching neuroanatomy specifically, but just how we think about teaching the body. You're, you're right. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so I loved that class. I was really inspired by Dr. Diamond uh, and the way that she taught and her sort of passion for the brain and for neuroscience. And that always had a really strong impact on me. Uh, so when I got the chance to start designing my own courses, that was why it was so appealing to me to, to do that sort of graduate, graduate level focused human neuroanatomy course because it had been such an important part of my training. Uh, when I started mm -hmm. off on getting my PhD. And can you talk a little bit about the work you did when you were in graduate school to get to that point? So what what does that look like for somebody that might not have um, a lot of experience, um, you know, past high school or undergraduate? What is, what is it like to be an undergraduate, uh, to be a graduate student in that context. Mm, okay, so like what is a PhD and what does it look like for those five or six or however many years? Yeah. Um, so I can tell you um, how my graduate program was, and I think it has a lot of commonalities uh, with other programs in neuroscience and related fields. Um, so the, your first two years are generally focused on coursework and finding the right lab uh, where you want to pursue your dissertation research. Um, and the program, I liked Berkeley's program in particular because it had something called lab rotations, 
where the first year graduate students come in and we had a chance to spend about a semester, a little less than a semester, um, you know, embedded in three different neuroscience labs uh, that we were potentially interested in. And we got a chance to learn a little bit about the methods that each of those labs used, get to know the people, get to know the principal investigator or the professor who's running the lab and see if um, it seemed like a good fit. Uh, and that was really important for me coming into grad school because I wasn't 100% sure which area I wanted to go into. So I um, explicitly picked a program where I could do those sort of rotations. And so in your first year, um, you're typically rotating through labs and taking some foundational courses. In, in a lot of programs around the end of the second year, you do something called a qualifying exam. And the purpose of the qualifying exam is typically to establish competency to pursue dissertation research. Um, and that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean to show that you required some of the necessary skills. It should, it almost always includes showing that you have a good understanding of the previous work that's been done in your field that you're building on. And then, for example, also showing that you have a good understanding of how to how to advance that field, what types of questions you should ask, uh, what potential confounds could come up in your experiments, um, and what the rationale for those experiments should be. So that usually happens, I think, around the two to three year mark in grad school. And then after that, you really transition to taking fewer classes, if any, and spending all of your time uh, working on your dissertation work. Uh, which in the case uh, for me, because I do research on humans, involved designing equipment, designing experiments, getting protocols in place for making sure that we ran those experiments in a way that was in accordance with the rules of the university, recruiting large numbers of people to come in and do the experiments. Um, and then for the type of work that I do, I would also, and still do, spend a lot of time writing computer code uh, that runs the experiments and helps me analyze the data, um, or maybe developing a quantitative model that predicts the results of my experiment and then comparing that to the data. Uh, so we do a good amount of computer programming, um, and then as you're getting more advanced in grad school, you would start maybe like writing papers about what your results are, presenting at conferences, and starting to disseminate the results of your work as it starts becoming more and more complete. And along this way, uh, how important is mentorship to the process? I would say that it might depend a little bit on the student. Uh, for me as a student, I think mentorship was really important. Um, because I came into grad school really excited to pursue a dissertation in somewhere in the area of human neuroscience, but not having exactly picked out my question yet. Um, my PhD mentor, who is Dr. Marty Banks, who's actually also on the faculty in the department that I'm in now, that relationship with him and his mentorship throughout that time was really important to, to getting through it. But then I think also in human subjects research labs and a lot of neuroscience research labs, there are many students often. Um, you know, there'll be postdoctoral researchers, uh, other graduate students, you know, sometimes there's staff scientists. And so I think also that inter-lab mentorship of, you know, a more advanced grad student or a postdoc to work with is also really important 
uh, when I was an undergrad and had my first lab research experience, um, I had been hired to work in a lab that was um, studying language processing in humans using fMRI recordings. Uh, and my at that point, my primary mentor was a postdoctoral researcher in the lab, Uri Hassan. So I think kind of early on that inter-lab mentorship is also really important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, as far as making somebody well-rounded, getting a lot of experience. Uh, and I think that's why it's interesting that you, you talked about the lab rotation being, being something that um, you found as a, as a positive thing. It's really, it seems like it would be really easy to get tunnel vision when you're working towards the end of your dissertation um, through in that, throughout that experience. Uh, did you find that that was something that you had to deal with or um, did you see other people that maybe had that experience where you get to the point where all you're really worrying about is getting to that end point and not the learning along the way? Hmm. It's an interesting question. Um, I get tunnel vision. I mean, I think to... To be a researcher and a scientist, I think you have to be willing to really focus and dig down on a particular problem because that's how you're going to make progress. You know, there's a lot of literature out there that's potentially informative when you're starting a new research project and you have to be willing to dig into it and then you have to be willing to really focus on it for extended periods of time. But I had... I just had a great time in grad school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure there were times that were stressful. I mean, there's times that are stressful (laughs) in all periods of life, but I, I just really like learning. I like doing research. Um, I like that I've basically never left school. Um, That's just been (laughs) really nice. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, (laughs) (laughs) And I think that kind of has to do with the importance of uh, really knowing what you want to do before you get into that PhD program. Because I'm assuming if you went in maybe not with eyes open and down the road, maybe you're like, oh, I've spent three years in this PhD program and I do not ever want to think about uh, psychology or neuroscience or anything having to do with vision again. So, So I think... That has to that that speaks to um, you. Really knew what it seems like you really knew what you wanted going into it. I do feel that I knew what I was getting into. I I think I mentioned I, I had spent a couple years as an undergraduate research assistant in a lab and had had good opportunities to learn about the research process and to talk with the graduate students who were in that lab and the postdoctoral researchers who were in that lab about what they were doing. Um, and then also, I, uh, my parents are both educators, uh, and my dad is a university professor. And so, you know, I grew up in a university town. Um, I always kind of, I think there was some familiarity in that as well. So, yeah, I do think it is important before enrolling in a graduate program to know what you're getting into and be excited about it because it's a 
you know, kind of getting back to what you said about having tunnel vision or having to really focus. I mean, it's important that you're interested in what you're studying, because if you are interested in what you're studying and passionate about it, it, it won't feel like a problem that you have to do that. Yeah. I was given the advice um, from one of my mentors uh, that is just read everything you can find on the subject. And if you keep reading and keep reading and keep reading and find yourself getting bored, then that might tell you something about that as like a long-term career pathway. If you are reading and reading and reading about that subject and find yourself like continually looking for that next thing to read up on, then that is also telling you something that maybe that is something you should be, be thinking about as a pathway. Yeah. Um, but I cannot stress enough that if you're listening to this as a second year undergraduate and you're thinking maybe I want to go into this field because I have a pretty good chance of getting a great job out of it, but not quite sold on, on advanced degrees in this, you know, take a lot of elective classes and see, see what happens. <laughs> what are the odds of James Reed deciding to pursue a PhD? Um, you know, never zero, nothing's ever zero, but it's close. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I feel like my place is doing stuff like this and being in science communication, um, because I really like the idea of just getting people interested in science. And I think that's where I can really do good. You know, people... People go into science for a lot of reasons, and I think um, at some point in that reason, being able to benefit something other than yourself is is in that part of the equation. And I think this is is where I found is my niche. You know, um, I really like anatomy. I really like biological anthropology, but I just I just don't think I'm at the point in my life where I could maybe make a go of that and do PhD work and do a lot of field work and stuff like that, you know, with a, with a small child and a home. (laughs) But I guess to answer your question actually is, I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) Time will tell. We'll do, we'll, we'll revisit this in 10 years. Um, (laughs) and we'll see where I'm at. Hopefully do still doing some form of this. Yeah. Makes sense. So kind of talking about this whole, uh, topic of, you know, really knowing what you want to get into after you've done it for a certain amount of time, you do have to keep yourself interested, right? So you love what you're doing and it never really feels like work, but there are days that are easier than others. So do you have any, anything that you found helpful in, um, getting through the tough parts of research, keeping keeping your eye on what you're doing and staying interested on the work in the work so it feels like less of a slog and more like part of the process yeah you know there's always something interesting to do as a researcher so i would say it's never a struggle to find something in my work that interests me But it's a balance because there are a lot of things that need to get done. And the most interesting thing to me in that moment isn't necessarily the thing that's the highest priority to get done in that moment. And I actually have this concept of uh, the forbidden work, 
which is whatever work I'm most interested in that I really shouldn't be doing at that time is is the work that I most want to do at that time. (laughs) But it's great because when you do the forbidden work, it doesn't feel like working at all. Mm -hmm. And so I guess maybe in answer to your question, giving myself time to do the forbidden work is helpful. But I also think in this job, you know, being on the faculty at a university, there are so many different things that we get to do. And I also, in this job, have the luxury of a lot, a lot of independence, you know, to steer the direction of my lab, uh, to tailor the content of my courses. And so being able to kind of juggle those things and maybe one day working on a class and the other day, you know, watching some talks or reading some papers, you know, another day spending a lot of time meeting with my students and helping them one-on-one. Like, I I think cycling through those different types of tasks really keeps the work interesting. Um, And then ultimately, I think if if I got to a point where I felt less excited about the type of work that I was doing on a day-to-day basis, you know, ultimately I get to decide the research questions that my lab pursues. Um, And so I think it's just a matter of making sure that I, that as a scientist, that you keep those questions fresh and that you keep them up to date um, and that you're steering your lab's research as a whole in a direction that seems important and valuable and interesting to you. And that kind of brings me to another interesting point that I was just thinking about as you're talking about steering the lab towards towards that work. People who don't know, uh, a principal investigator or a PI of a lab is kind of like the captain of the ship, right? And you're also kind of a relationship manager and supervisor and uh, a guide along the way. And I've always found that to be interesting. And how do you manage the team to get work done and be productive, but also not to make it seem like you're an overlord on, on like this, this small group. So, so how do you find, and this is maybe something that, that I really just need in my own career advice, but how do you, (laughs) how do you strike the balance between making sure that the work gets done, but also to make it not seem like you're micromanaging the team? Yeah. Yeah, welcome to James's podcast about career advice. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, so I have a couple of thoughts on that. One thought is that I think it would be accurate to say that most scientists get very little formal training in those skills. Um, I don't want to overgeneralize. Maybe there are places where you do. Um and so my strategy has been to try to learn by example from my mentors that I've had um, throughout my training. Um, so, you know, just thinking about the question you asked before about trying to keep things interesting. You know, in the my PhD mentor, Marty Banks, uh, has had a career where, you know, he started in one area, um, made a lot of great contributions there, and then has has just moved to other areas uh, and he hasn't been afraid to tackle a new problem um, and to maybe change the focus of the lab a little bit. Um, and I think I, 
I really appreciated seeing him doing that and, you know, thinking more broadly about the types of questions that he could, that he would tackle in his lab. And I lost my train of thought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think, I think what, in the absence of formal managerial training, we're kind of left to try to learn by example. Um, And I feel like I, I have had some great examples of mentorship styles that worked for me um, and tried to implement them in the lab. And I try to be really explicit with my trainees about the goals associated with the decisions that we're making and the framework that we use to make those goals. Um, So for example, I don't know, maybe this will be helpful to you. Uh, It's been, it's really (laughs) helpful to me. So in my postdoc lab, my, my postdoc mentor, Tony Norcia, I don't know how intentional this was, but it always felt like decisions were made based on the question of what, what the training opportunity was uh, for the student or for the postdoc and, and how does that fit into their career. And in running my own lab, I found that to be a really effective way to make decisions Um, because it makes sense to the students and it seems like when you when you think about problems and decisions that way uh, a lot of other stuff comes along with it like the good science um, you know and and the productivity because if you're doing what works for the trainees then it seems like a lot of other stuff starts working as well so that would be my career advice to you, James. <laughs> no, it makes it makes total sense. And I think, you know, obviously this has lab applications as we're talking about it. But, you know, if anyone is in a supervisory role, productivity for productivity's sake is never going to really get the outcomes that you're expecting. Um, I think we can all remember, you know, maybe elementary or middle school doing busy work and not really feeling super engaged in the topic. But then when you get to go on like a field trip, you you take something on a little bit more. So it's yeah, you you find the thing that works and not just go and say, be productive. I want you to hit these benchmarks. And yeah, that doesn't sound like an effective strategy. Great. So I'm doing the right thing. That's all I wanted. To, to know. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the, I, I created a podcast for validation. I don't know if anyone else has ever done a podcast to be validated. I'm sure most of us have uh, in the podcasting realm, but, <laughs> but I am definitely not above that. So I, we are coming to the end of our time together. Time has absolutely just evaporated. Um, but we are we are going to have to end this episode eventually, and I want to end it by giving you the opportunity to clear up a misconception that the public might have about your work, about science in general, or really, uh, really anything that you would want to talk about. I'm not sure if this is quite a misconception, but it's something that I... I think on a daily basis, people probably don't think about very much. And maybe I'll throw it out there as something that's kind of fun to think about as you go about your daily life. A lot of my research, not all of it, but a good amount of it centers around binocular vision and how it is that our brain combines information from two eyes 
to create this single percept of unified percept of a view of the world. And I think it's interesting to observe that we all know that we have two eyes. It's pretty obvious. Or, you know, most people have two eyes. Um, but if you think about how you, what the phenomenology is of your perception of the world, it kind of feels like you're a cyclops. No, that's absolutely true. Uh, and you can actually do these cool demos with, um, you know, someone made this for a class that I that I co-taught. Um, for example, if you if you ask a small child, you give them a tube and tell them to put the tube up to their eye so they can look through it. I don't know how how old is how old is your child? Four. Ah, could be Four. a good age to try it. Yeah. Uh, take a tube, ask them to put the tube up to your eye. Um, what what they might often do is I'm gonna I'm gonna do it so James can see it and then we can describe what I did. Is <laughs> is they'll just do this. So they just <laughs> put it up right on their nose bridge because what it feels like is that you're a cyclops. Uh, and actually, saw a lot of. Um, terminology in my field of you know stereo and binocular vision people throw around the term like cyclopean vision or cyclopean eye to kind of refer to how it is things appear in reference to that imaginary cyclopean eye so i would just throw that out there is it's just i think it, it's a fun thing to think about i've been studying binocular vision for quite a long time and i still just have fun thinking about the fact that I, I feel like I have only one eye, but obviously I have, I, ha I know I have two. All right, that is episode five in the books. Thank you so much for making it all the way to the end. And for the record, I did have my daughter try the experiment that Emily talked about at the end. And while she did look at me and humor me for a few seconds, she did immediately go back to playing with her blocks. So uh, the jury is still out as to where she finds the middle part of her visual field at this point in her development. So as we talked about at the end, the follow-up episode will be a deeper dive into binocular vision, and that will be available in two weeks. As always, thank you to the River Power Podcast Mill. This is a network that is just full of amazing content for you to listen to. If you're into horror, listen to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. If you are a local Windsor, Vermont resident and you're not sick of my voice, Chris Goulet and I talk about local news and goings-on at Windsor Live, coming to you straight from Windsor, Vermont, the center of the universe. And if you love some improv comedy, listen to Too Many Hats. Their most recent episode is so good. Um, I, I have really come to enjoy my time spent listening to them. Um, and also, you know, I don't I don't shout out Stone Soup enough, but if you want interesting conversations with interesting people, give that a listen as well. I will be back in two weeks, and until then, have a great night. <laughs>